You're listening to TIP. My advice would be to look back at what you did or didn't do in terms of investing and realize that if you had patience and discipline, you might have done something different. You could have held on to stocks longer. In this episode, I chat with Mary Buffett and Sean Sia about Warren's aversion to financial leverage and how he used float as a viable alternative, simple ways to find new ideas, why Warren loves monopolies so much, the way Buffett thinks about and eliminates commodity-type businesses, Buffett's thought process on holding Coca-Cola when it was overpriced, how to develop patience and discipline, and a whole lot more. Mary Buffett wrote two of my favorite investing books, Buffettology and Warren Buffett and the Interpretation of Financial Statements. A few of my favorite lessons from these books were the importance of looking at stocks like bonds and alternative ways of valuing stocks. I reference these two books often whenever I look to top up my knowledge on how I think about investing. Her co-author, Sean Sia, did a great job of relating real-life experiences to the investing process in their book, Seven Secrets to Investing Like Warren Buffett. His investing experiences really resonated with me as I've gone through many of the same obstacles he did on the investing journey. If you enjoy learning about how Warren Buffett invests and how to utilize those lessons in easy-to-use ways, then you won't want to miss this episode. Now, without further ado, let's get right into this week's episode with Mary Buffett and Sean Sia. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard, Patrick Donnelly, and Kyle Grieve, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Grieve, and today we bring Mary Buffett and Sean Shea onto the show. Mary, Sean, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Yes, happy to be here. You two co-wrote a book called Seven Secrets to Investing Like Warren Buffett. In it, you have a wonderful Warren Buffett quote. You really don't need to use leverage. If you're smart, you're going to make a lot of money without borrowing. What is it about leverage that attracts so many investors, and why has Buffett managed to stay away from it? Borrowing money for Warren just isn't a good idea. I mean, because I think with the small amount of money that he has or that he anyone has, he can make money with that money. I just don't think it's something that he would ever do. I've never known him to talk about borrowing money. Whatever money he has, he would just invest it and whatever money he makes on that he continues to build it. I mean, yeah, I've never known him talk about borrowing money or to think about borrowing money. I just think it's too unattractive for him. With regard to that, I I wish that I've heard that quote much earlier before I started investing. Embarrassed to say, when I first started, I actually borrowed money to invest. Uh, In Singapore, there's this particular investment tool called Contract for Differences, where you can leverage up to seven times your capital. And guess what? I was attracted. And back then, I think that I wanted to have that kind of leverage so that I can make money fast. I can just put 10,000 in and I can invest up to 70,000 worth of uh, equities, thinking that if they double within, uh, let's say, a week, that's where I can use 10,000 to make another additional 70,000. But well, I guess we all know how the story goes. I wiped out my account very quickly and I tried jumping onto the next instrument, which was Forex trading at that point in time. And they allow me to leverage up to 1 is to 1,000. Meaning you say I can put a certain amount in, I can leverage up to 1,000 times. 
And guess what? I burst my account again. And the more times I burst the account, the more I desire leverage so that I can make the money back fast. It becomes like a revenge trading or revenge investing. On high side, I realized what Warren mentions. What, what, it makes, what, what he say makes sense. Because if you're good at investing, it is not that you do not leverage. It is that you use smart leveraging. When I studied Warren, I realized that he leverages a lot, but he doesn't do it by borrowing money. He does it by buying insurance companies because it's a different kind of leverage. That's where he buy into companies that gives him float. And with that float, he's able to use it to invest and make even more revenue. And he, he doesn't take on the risk of having to return the money. And you have to be correct within a certain time frame if you borrow money. And once you borrow the money, interest kicks in. That's where it goes against you. Before you start, you have already lost. So I guess when you talk about leveraging, there are good kinds of leverage. There are silly kind of leverage. And conventionally, most of us, we use the silly kind. Part of what makes Warren Buffett such a great investor is that he approaches investing from a business-like perspective. But let's say an aspiring investor wants to invest in stocks with a business-like attitude, but has zero entrepreneurial background. What would you suggest they do outside of you know, reading a bunch of business books and biographies of business greats? Actually, with regard to that, Mary, I remember, in fact, I took a page from your playbook. I remember Mary told me a story that when uh, her kids were much younger, she told them to just like invest in a certain portfolio based on, I remember you told me, in the past, it was a newspaper, they have all the stock ticker and you ask them to really select certain stocks. And they select, like, I, I think you mentioned pure berries and, and stocks that they know. Hagen Interestingly, Dark. last year, a Hagen Dazs, correct? And you, you mentioned that you wish that you have actually bought those stocks. So taking a page from the playbook, what I did last Christmas when, was I asked my kids to buy stocks and they bought three stocks. Uh, the portfolio wasn't very big. I gave them $1,000. So they couldn't build a huge portfolio. They bought three stocks, Disney, because they, they like all the Marvel heroes. Second one, they bought into Netflix because they see me watching Netflix a lot of time. Now, I, I listen to the podcast as well, but I, I spend time watching Netflix. And the third one was Alphabet because they use a lot of YouTube. And guess what? The portfolio is already up by 50% uh, since last year, December. So I realized that when we talk about buying stocks as an investment or a business perspective, you do not really need to read a lot of business books. My, my, my kids didn't read business books, but they understand business as a consumer. So I think that's, that's where we, we talk about that. So I, I remember you mentioned that, right, Mary? About them doing the P ratio. Yeah. I mean, it, what's very interesting about your story is they bought what they know. You know, I mean, they, they understood and know all three of those companies that they're talking about buying. And I think that's really important for investors to remember is, you know, a lot of people you hear about stocks or businesses that other people are talking about, but you don't really know them. And people have invested in, in companies and stocks that they didn't know anything about. And I think that's completely crazy. You really should know what you're investing in. If you're using it, or even better. But like I said, you know, Haagen-Dazs, Burger King, all the things that my daughters wanted to invest in were things that they absolutely knew. You know, so a lot of investors will hear about a stock or a company and they'll just go and invest in it because someone said, oh, it's, I've made a lot of money. But no, you really should invest in what you know. Buffett still lives by uh, many of the principles that he's learned from Benjamin Graham, especially in regards to investing with a margin of safety, the Mr. Market analogy and the business owner's mindset. But a lot of Buffett's investing has evolved from Graham's net nets to investing in high quality businesses like, you know, Apple. 
So if Buffett started today with the prevalence of growth companies and intangible assets, do you think he still would be drawn to the traditional low price to earnings, low price to book style of value investing? Yeah, I do. I think it's traditional low PE and PP styles of investing are, are very good. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I was looking back at uh, the history of the how this whole thing originated when Buffett, when Warren uh, learned from Benjamin Graham, one of the key things was net-net. And he was looking at a company's asset value, uh, net current asset value, and trying to buy below the price. So there's a huge margin of safety. I think this is one way of valuating whether a company is below value. Okay, if you can buy below value, excellent. Another way of looking at things, which people or conventionally people call it growth investing, is to compare the current value to, to future value. If you can see a potential future value shift, this is with a lot of, uh, I would say, assumption and prediction. That's why it's important to buy into predictable companies. And you see that there's a future, like this company is going to be like five times bigger. Well, this is also considered undervalued. If you ask me to make calculated guess, which one will he use right now? I got a feeling it will be, it will be like, a, like a mixture of both. It will not be one or the other. Because looking at his portfolio right now, you do see him buying into banks, correct? Like I think he invested heavily into different like heavy asset investments like banks or even like oil and gas companies. And these are he- heavily, I would say, asset-based. At the same time, he also, I mean, his biggest holding is Apple, which is, is it about 50% or 60% right now? This is a growth company, but it's, a, it's still a mixture. So I guess he's, he doesn't have to be either. That being said, in my opinion, I've also realized that the valuation of the market has generally rise over the years. I guess it's because there's more participants in the market. And that when there's more participants, the PB ratio, the P ratio has, has risen to a certain uh, higher level. So to find it like maybe two-thirds of uh, the current asset value may not be as easy. That, that's my opinion, even with, uh, let's say, stock screeners and things like that. That's what I think. So Sean, as a value investor who's well-versed in technology, I'm interested in knowing your favorite method of finding new stock ideas. In the book, you mentioned some great ideas such as leveraging your circle of competence, tracking the super wealthy, uh, looking at data to find the best companies, using your shopping mall to generate new ideas, which you just mentioned, and how to clone other value investors. I'd love to know what your favorite methods are and if there's any new technology you're using to help you find new ideas these days. I do talk about using screeners, uh, using certain websites, or in recent years, we can even use uh, AI. It's just interesting the kind of ideas I can give you. Like you can, I tried using, asking ChatGPT or even Google. Imagine you're Warren Buffett. Right now, what are the kind of uh, undervalued opportunities they'll give you? And you'll be surprised what they can give you. Now, that being said, right, using screeners, using websites, typically it is a one-off kind of strategy for finding stocks. Reason being, if I use a screener this week and next week, they typically give me the same ideas because the valuation doesn't change that much over, let's say, one week or even one month. I get some ideas here, but my favorite kind, right, is actually like what I mentioned, like how our kids choose investing. Invest in what you know. I bought Microsoft, I think, earlier this year when ChatGPT became something quite, I would say, quite popular. And I'm thinking, wow, who owns this? And I realized Microsoft owns this. And I have a lot of assumptions, a lot of theories. I may be right, I may be wrong, but it, it pikes my interest. So I invested into Microsoft. Well, good news is, uh, went up, make money from it. So my, my favorite way is still really looking around. I think it's, it makes, okay, because I'm not someone who loves shopping. So it makes my, when I accompany my wife to the shopping center, it makes my life more bearable to like search for investment ideas while, while shopping with her. Uh, that's now, now one of my favorite me- methods. 
Yeah. So I guess, you know, using your own experience and then maybe mixing that with just opening up your newspaper or a newspaper app and reading the news and seeing what, how those businesses are doing in the news would be a, a decent uh, starting point for someone. I love that. So one thing is when I read stocks that are in the news, I always feel that I'm slightly too late because it's already in the news. So what I do is I try to find either that particular company's suppliers or maybe competitors. Like example, uh, something I remember way back was I think, was it Bill Upman? He was uh, shorting Herbalife. So the, the network company marketing, uh, network marketing company's industry was being affected. I, I do not, I do not invest in Herbalife, but I try to find the peripherals, those that are surrounding it. So I managed to find other companies and I thought it was a better investment. That, that, that's how I like to look at things. Yeah, I like that. So basically, you're just looking for uh, the baby being thrown out in the bathwater with one bad news item and then just looking at the peripherals of what else is not doing well. Yes. Yeah, I like for that. Sure. So Warren has a brilliant mental model for determining if a business has monopolistic characteristics that Mary outlined in Buffettology. He'd ask, if an intelligent and able competitor had access to billions of dollars, could they start a business and successfully compete with the business? If you had to guess what percent of Warren's private and publicly owned businesses he's purchased in his career had monopolistic tendencies? Boy, I would say most of them. I mean, if you just think about it, you know, Coca-Cola, the companies, if you look at the companies that Berkshire owns, most of them have monopolistic tendencies. And you ask, why did he go against this rule to buy non-monopolistic type businesses like airlines, retailers, and show manufacturers? Airlines wasn't a good buy for him. Retailers, I mean, the Nebraska Furniture Mart is from Nebraska. He knows the owner. It's just interesting. I mean, Nebraska Furniture Mart is... There's nothing like it. I mean, people come from all over, literally the country, to go there to shop. It's a crazy place. <laughs> Airlines, that wasn't a great buy for him. When you talk about being a mon- monopolistic company, it is pretty subjective, I guess. So I think the indicators that we always look at in the buffetology, we talk about net margin, okay, like gross, gross margin. The assumption is this, if let's say you have certain advantage over your other competitors, likely you're able to charge higher, uh, resulting in a higher margin, or you're able to reduce costs significantly. So so it's always back to the margin. So I guess, I, I remember there was one, I couldn't remember the year, was it 2007 or 2008? There was uh, previously, Warren bought a lot into IBM. And at his annual general meeting, someone actually asked him, he said, what? Like Warren, what, what is the competitive advantage? What is the economic mode of uh, IBM? And I remember his, his reply actually shocked me. He said that, frankly, I don't know, but the number seems to suggest it has. That's an economic mode. So that's why I realized, wow, uh, it is, it is really subjective. And, uh, even, even Warren Buffett doesn't have all the answers. If it's really, there's a correct answer, we will be able to do a, like a, it's like a black and white, right or wrong, binary kind of a, a thing, but it isn't. And that's, that's why investing is so interesting. You have to make certain assumptions, make certain guesses. And make sure that even if you are wrong, you can take the affordable losses. I I guess that's how we play the game. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV. Like an adventure-ready RAV4, available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, 
plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with the available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. So Mary, you had a really good breakdown of uh, commodity type businesses that you wrote in Buffetology, which has been very helpful for me. And I'm sure a lot of other people who've read that book to help eliminate low quality businesses. So for listeners not aware of what creates a commodity type business, they are low profit margins, low returns on equity, absence of brand name loyalty, presence of multiple producers in the industry existence of excess production capacity and erratic profits and high dependence on tangible assets. So when Warren is analyzing a business, how quickly do you think he's able to determine a business's quality? I think it's pretty easily. I mean, like I said, just looking at those things, their profit margin, their return on equity, do they have a brand name loyalty? All of these are really important things. I think those all determine a business's quality. I mean, think about a company like Coca-Cola. You understand Coca-Cola, it's, there's nothing like it. Or Apple or, you know, go ahead, Sean. I think he can analyze a company quickly because he chooses easy companies to analyze. So it goes back to the idea where you don't go into something so complicated where you need to really frown and really crack your head over it. If it's so difficult, maybe maybe it's not the investment you should invest in. I'm not saying that we don't do our due diligence, right, Mary? I think when we were talking about Apple back in, was it 2017 or 16 when we were in LA, we were just looking and we said, Apple is a good company. And we invested into, into Apple 
And few months later, we saw Berkshire b- b- buying a lot of Apple. So he's thinking, oh, it, it becomes so obvious that it's a strong company. I believe investment should be like that. So I think, was it Peter Lynch that mentioned? If you cannot like illustrate the whole business using crayon, you shouldn't invest. Well, if there's, I mean, the, the principle behind it is it must be so simple to really understand the business, right? I mean, for me, I can't really draw anything with crayon by that token. I shouldn't invest, but it's besides the point. It's to keep things simple. Keep things simple. Let's say just going back in history, let's say Warren finds a business that he maybe finds interesting, but he deems it low quality right now. Does he like putting these types of businesses on a watch list just to watching, maybe seeing in the future if there's going to be a change in management or a change in business strategy that maybe it would become a viable investment later on in the future? No, I would say uh, no. I think if it's low quality now, no, I don't think that management or the business changing is going to, no, not, not the future, no. I remember in your Tower of Warren Buffett, you, you mentioned something like kissing frogs. People kiss frogs hoping that they'll turn into prince, but you just, kissing a lot of frogs just get your mouth uh, a bad taste. I can't remember the exact quote, but I, I remember it was in a Tower of Warren Buffett. So uh, I guess like what Mary mentions, if it's not good, I mean, there, there are plenty of good businesses around. So <laughs> go, go for those, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think you guys are both right on that. And it seems like sometimes he'll follow super high quality business for a really long period of time. Like I know with, I think Occidental, he's followed that business for like 40 years and, and never bought it. And just, I guess the price was right and he liked the opportunity. So he jumped on in. 40 years, like you said. I mean, what other investor do you know that you can say that about? Who follows a business for 40 years? Yeah, it's like, wow. So Buffett has said, I think I could make you 50% a year on $1 million. No, I know I could. I guarantee that. I know many people in my audience's eyes got big when they heard this quote. Given all the research you two have done on Warren Buffett's history, can you outline what you think or guess what his strategy would be to accomplish this incredible rate of return? When he said that, right, I guess what he was trying to say is uh, there's a structural disadvantage having huge capital. Well, did he really make 50% per year? You know, on high side, we can say a lot of things, right? Well, if I have $2, I can make 100% a, a year. Obviously, Warren isn't someone who just shoot out statements like this as well. He has, he has indeed made like 100% a year, 50% a year. Uh, in the past, using the method of, again, what Graham talks about. So he actually bought bus company, uh, knowing a certain exit point. He even actually done arbitrage before. He has a huge arsenal of weapons in, inside his whole investment uh, chest, correct? Is there one particular method? I don't think so. And I also do not think when he says 50% a year, it means like every year, a straight line 50%. But if you give me 1 million, I can turn it into 100 million over a certain number of years. And when you compile it, it's like 50% per year. I, that, that's what I truly believe. Let's let, hopefully the listeners can take this with a more, I will say, realistic expectation and not try to find a holy grail. I mean, I, I wish I can do that as well. I don't really think there's something like that. It is really a philosophy of believing in what you're investing in and knowing that they will grow your money by a certain rate. It's, it's an assumption. Some of the less Buffett-like investments Berkshire has made in their public portfolio recently are Newbank, which is trading at a PE around 711 with highly erratic free cash flows. Snowflake, which has never been profitable, but it's growing its free cash flows very quickly. And Stoneco, which also has a highly erratic profitability track record. Do you think Buffett has embraced tech or are these more of a result of him handing off responsibility to uh, Ted Wexler and Todd Combs? I think absolutely it's Ted Wexler and Todd Combs. Buffett, 
embrace tech? <laughs> no. I mean, those definitely seems like, seem like Ted and Todd. I can't see Warren embracing tech. I think one thing that's consistent about what Warren does is he invests into the right people. So like even when you talk about Nebraska Furniture Mart or even quite, quite a number of it, okay, Geico, he actually took control of it. But most of the time when he invests, he allows the management to continue to do it. So I guess when he has his two lieutenant uh, that join him, like what you mentioned, New Bank or even, I think even Amazon or even like a certain, certain investment doesn't smell like a Buffett traditional type of investment. But the way that he gives them the freedom is exactly what he does. He, he allows them to do what, he, what, what they do and I mean, he takes it. So that's, that's what I believe. That being said, when you talk about high P, it is not, it is not uncommon because even when you talk about uh, when he bought Nebraska Furniture Mart, I remember he paid about 50 over million for it based on the revenue back then or even the profit back then, he was making about 1 million plus. So he was paying about 50 times P ratio back then, but it was a private company. And it was even more uncommon because for a stock, for you to pay a, a high multiple, it makes sense. But for a private company to pay 55 times, it is unheard of. But what happens now is if you look at Nebraska Financial Mart, I do not have the latest numbers. If I remember correctly, I was reading it a few years ago. Every week, they are making 55 million. So he paid one time 55 million. Right now, he is really bearing the fruits. So he looks into the future. So it's, it's not uncommon to pay high P. But embracing, again, I'm, I'm not too sure as well. With the way that he has the help set up from Todd and Ted, are they able to basically green light any investment on their own without even asking Warren first? I know Warren places a lot of trust in the people that he works with. Is that kind of the model that they have set up? I don't think so. I think they all ask Warren eventually. I don't think they just go out and make investments now. I think he has to green light it. I, I'm not too sure. I'm just imagining how he would do it. Because I, so, so, I mean, this is the fun part where we always uh, discuss, me and Mary, we will discuss that. I'm just, we, we didn't really ask Warren before, but I'm just thinking how he will groom the next generation. I guess it makes sense for them to like come up to him with the investment thesis and he will guide them through, question them, mentor them. I will assume that he will be a very good mentor. Looking at the way he, he talks on YouTube and uh, the way he talks to us at the, at the AGM. But whether he green light or not, I, I'm not really not too sure. I, I got a feeling that he will let them test their own things and he mentioned this he mentioned it before he said that we can lose money even a lot of money but we cannot lose a single share of reputation so I am from there I'm I'm assuming that he allows them to do things as long as it's not illegal or things like that well, what do you think Mary or is he an illegal person no, I don't think so oh no you're absolutely right let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV. Like an adventure-ready RAV4, available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with the available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. 
When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, taking forever to close the books, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, you should know three numbers, 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their book in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. Business owners know the power and simplicity of using one tool for things such as scaling up their business, adopting new business models, and easily viewing real-time analytics on one interface. NetSuite offers the unprecedented ability to make all this possible. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com mi. That's netsuite.com mi to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com mi. All right, back to the show. So Sean, in your book, you and Mary had some very interesting points on portfolio management. One area that I've always found interesting is when to exit an investment. So in your book, you outline that when a stock appears to be overvalued, selling is obviously a rational action. But Warren has seemingly gone against this during his career during certain times. So for instance, Coca-Cola in the early 2000s, was a PE of 40. And like you just said, you know, PE doesn't always matter because he's forward looking and looking to the future. But why do you think he held on to Coke during that time when it seemed overpriced to, you know, the naked eye? Again, my, for my opinion, understanding what Warren does, he always mentioned that the main job is to allocate capital. So I guess whenever he makes a decision of whether to buy or to sell is where to best place that particular percentage of capital that he already invested in. So I guess even when Coca-Cola was uh, at a P of 40 plus, the question that I would assume that he asked himself is, if I take the money out from Coca-Cola, where else can I put it that gives me a higher yield? And if let's say there isn't a more obvious place to do that, just keep it in the place of Coca-Cola because he believes that four or five years later, you'll go higher up. He doesn't time the market. He doesn't know whether it's going to crash and things like that. So it's about allocation of capital. Yes, I totally agree. For the listeners, maybe, maybe an easier guideline was this. That I will ask myself based on uh, after reading uh, Buffettology and studying under Mary is when we buy a business, we are buying a wonderful business at a fair price or hopefully an undervalued price. These are the two key reasons why you buy a business. So when do we actually sell it? Again, in my opinion, it is when these two reasons for buying is no longer valid. First reason, wonderful business. If it is no longer a wonderful business, I will sell it. 
Now, this doesn't mean that the business is crashing. It may be, I think it's wonderful because it is at a growth stage and it may has, it may has, it has hit a plateau. So example, I think years back, I was buying McDonald's and after I realized, wow, they can't really expand much again, my own assessment. So I think it is no longer as wonderful as I want it to be. I exit at a good profit. Another thing is it may be a wonderful business, but the price is no longer so attractive, but it's really overvalued. But again, like I mentioned, where, where, where else can I put that money? If I can find a better investment, I'll put it somewhere else. If not, the decision may be just to stay put. Yeah, Mary. Yeah, I agree. Totally. Mary, in a previous interview you had, you talked a little bit about how value investors like having a little bit of cash lying around in case big opportunities arise for them. So Buffett has taken that to the extremes as Berkshire Hathaway now has uh, $107.38 billion or so in cash on its balance sheet. So for investors who do have cash available but aren't ready to deploy it into an investment, what are some short-term investments they can make today to continue earning interest on those cash positions? Where are you putting your hundred billion dollars, Mary? Like the banks? Like what was the, what's the bank rate in, in US right now? In Singapore, it's about three. You can go up to three percent, but it, it still lose to inflation. But it, it slows down the rate of uh, really like the money depreciating. What is it right now? Well, I don't really know. It it changes, but I like cash. I mean, I don't put it in in short term investments. I only like long term investments, or I have it in cash waiting for something to put it in. No short-term investments for me. And how about you, Sean? If you had cash on the sidelines and didn't like the prices of some of the things that uh, you saw, are you following in in, uh, Mary's footsteps there and just leaving in cash? Or do you have some sort of short-term strategies that you like to use? Usually I will just put it with my wife to make her a happy wife. But jokes aside, uh, what, what happens is I'm always exploring. So I do have certain amount of money set aside which I call it an education fund. Now, I mean, in some sense, when I say education fund, means I'm investing into things that I don't really truly or fully comprehend, but I just really want to test them out. So, so I do, I do set aside a certain portion of it to test it out. Maybe call it a venture capitalist fund, which I know is a pretty high risk, but, but I do use like options, writing of options, getting some cash uh, from there. But I write really, I'm not sure whether the audiences are familiar with the idea of options, writing cash secured put options that is really out of the money to make a certain percentage every single month or every week. That's something I like to do and I'm quite familiar with that. I even tested putting a certain small amount into, okay, what do you call that? I know if you hold USDC coins, they give you some staking amounts. I do like to test all this. Again, I, I, I call it my education fund. I don't put too much into it. The rest, as what Mary mentioned, put into cash, waiting for the, the, the big, I would say, great sale, okay, where, where the stocks are really cheap. Patience and discipline has been a key attribute that Warren Buffett has expressed in large amounts throughout his investing career. But the average investor seems to have a very hard time consistently being patient and disciplined. What would be your advice to investors looking to improve their patience and discipline for the long run? I guess my advice would be to look back at what you did or didn't do in terms of investing and Realize that if you had patience and discipline, you might have done something different. You could have held on to stocks longer. Patience and discipline are very, very difficult. Their personality, I mean, it's part of your personality. Warren is patient. He's obviously very disciplined. I think it's very hard to learn those attributes. You can practice, but I think. Either you're patient, by being patient, it's a form of discipline. I think it's very hard 
to be patient and disciplined if you're not already doing it. And I think it's worse nowadays because, you know, last time, you think about Netflix, you see, they allow you to binge watch all the shows at one time. I mean, in the past, you have to wait for the next episode, the next week, you see. So I think it's getting worse for people like learning to wait for things to happen. It's getting worse. At the same time, I was also thinking because, you know, like I told you, my, my kids bought into stocks. They are not extremely patient people per se, but they don't really bother me about, about the stocks. They just say run. They ask me once in a while, how is it? I'll show them. And they, okay, sure. They have the attributes of very strong investors. And I realize why is it so? Because it's not their money, you see. So, so I, I mean, when I, when I come back to think about it, I think that when your money is being put in a stock market, a lot of emotions is being involved and uh, it goes into an extreme, especially if it's money you cannot afford to lose. Correct. It's, it's just like you, you can be a very good surgeon, excellent, but when you are like operating on someone you really love and the risk is very high, suddenly you go crazy. So it, I guess it is contextual. Maybe for a start, for beginners, try to put aside money that you can lose. But it should not be something that you can lose and don't feel anything. You feel a bit of pin- pinch of a, a bit, a bit of pinch of pain, but you can lose them. So you don't, you don't make silly decisions. And when you realize that you can make wise de- decision as an investor, you add on to the, to the amount that you invest. It's like, it's like putting on weights, right? You become stronger and stronger. But initially, I guess the amount affects your patience and discipline. That, that, that's my, that's my, I would say hypothesis. I'm not sure. What do you guys think? I think it's very hard to teach people patience and discipline. I just think discipline is easier than patience. Yeah, that discipline makes sense. Discipline is easier than patience. Maybe you just like, for your kids, just buy them a lower like internet plan. Then they have to keep loading their website. <laughs> I don't know. Something like that. Just coming up with ideas. Yeah. So Sean, you, you mentioned one thing earlier that just with the way the world is now, with technology being so prevalent, it's a lot easier to be distracted. And it seems like um, people's ability to delay gratification is, is uh, at, a, at an all-time low. So with that said, though, I know some people like changing their environments a little bit, like whether that's you know, not checking their portfolio often or you know, just removing apps that, that are going to make them make silly decisions. Do you have any suggestions of uh, kind of environmental factors that people can do, whether that's technology or whatever that, that, can, that can help them? I guess, like Mary said, it's hard to improve patience and discipline, but just things that can help you make less poor decisions. I'm tempted to say to like really cancel your Netflix subscription, but my, my son is a shareholder, so uh, I shouldn't suggest that. <laughs> but I guess like, uh, nowadays, people are becoming more aware that we have this issue. And I think like even practicing mindfulness, uh, doing meditation, all these things helps. As you mentioned, really don't check your phone immediately each time. Just just set it aside and have a certain... It goes back to discipline, right? Mary said that discipline is easier than patience. So you set aside certain discipline to train your patience. Like every day, only certain periods in time, you check your phone and stuff like that. I don't have a straight answer for that, but I guess it's, it's really becoming aware and then making sure whatever that triggers your emotion to want to immediately get something, the instant gratification component of it, aim to manage it. Know that it's there and aim to manage it. So you mentioned meditation there. So do you have like a meditation framework that you use on a regular basis or is it kind of just whenever? Because I know a lot of people do it. I haven't done it with any regularity yet, but I'd like to incorporate it. So how would you go about incorporating that if, uh, if you were brand new to meditating, specifically in re- reference to uh, improving yourself as an investor? Okay, I go extreme a little bit because for me, when I try to do something like even meditation, I'll go a bit extreme. So I, I, I 
Okay, this is not an advertisement. It's not paid. Uh, I'm not paid to say this. But I bought this particular uh, headband called Muse, M-U-Z-E, where they give you biofeedback on how calm your mind is. So it's, it's quite funny. You put it on, you put on your earpiece, you, are, you hear like maybe rainfall. You can choose, you can choose the ambience sound that you want. Can be rainfall, can be forest sound. And when your mind is very cluttered, the rainfall heavier. That's where you realize you have to relax. So there's actually practice of uh, relaxing your mind. This helps you as an investor because you become aware that you are making decisions when you are like having a cluttered mind. You are doing things without thinking through. You, you become very aware how your brain is operating when there's a biofeedback. So using technology, interestingly, technology is the one that causes a lot of us to become very impatient. But now you can use technology to counter this as well. And Sean, you mentioned that you've, have you, you've, met, you've met Warren before? At the AGMS. Only at the AGM. Not, not personally. Yeah. How many of the, uh, do you go to the AGMs every year? Quite often. Okay, I went there. Oh no, actually I went there once only. Realized that. Yeah, after that, uh, there's the, the, there's a Yahoo streaming and I, I just, I just watched the Yahoo streaming. Yeah, I know that, uh, to get, to get to Omaha, even, even for me from Vancouver, it takes forever. So I, I can't imagine how hard it is for you to get there. It must be like 24 hours or something. Oh, that's right. And you have to book the accommodation way in advance. The whole place is, by the time I go to the AGM, it's actually quite tiring. The whole, the whole place is cold. Watching from the comfort of home is uh, much nicer nowadays. Are you planning on going again some point in the future? Maybe next year, but more of just, just for fun, you know. Mary, Sean, thank you so much for joining me today. Before we close out the episode, where can the audience connect with you and learn more about the two of you, your book, and your online academy? MaryBuffett.com for me. You can search for Sean Sia at, uh, on Facebook as well. And you can also look for Buffer Online School. That's where we teach the ideas of what uh, Warren is doing. And, and do, look, do read Mary's books. They are the books that actually got me started into investing. Yep. And just so for the audience, for Sean, just his last name is S-E-A-H, just so you know. Thanks so much, Kyle. Thanks, Kyle. Okay, folks, that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll see you back here very soon. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.